Welcome everyone uh, to this episode of the AOC PM&R podcast. Um, today, we are lucky to have Dr. Alex Fogarty with us. Uh, did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, you did okay, a great job. Great. Um, so a little bit of an introduction. Um, so Dr. Fogarty is currently the academic chief resident at the Washington University in St. Louis PM&R residency program. Um, she will continue her education as a fellow in sports medicine in St. Louis as well. Um, so welcome, Dr. Fogarty. And of course, I have to ask, did you also do undergrad and med school in St. Louis as well? <laughs> I did not, although there are many, uh, many of my colleagues here who are uh, lifers at uh, Washington University. Certainly, uh, that's a, a pretty familiar path. But for me, I'm actually originally from Canada, so I did um, some schooling there as well as internationally and then um, in the U.S. and by some serendipitous way, ended up here in St. Louis. Well, that's awesome. I'm excited to get into your journey then. Uh, that sounds exciting. Um, so first of all, thank you so much for joining us and for taking the time out of your day. Um, and so, yeah, let's get started. So before yeah, we kind of, before we, we jump into the more nitty gritty, uh, all the physiatry stuff and, and, uh, and details, let's, sort of get into a little bit of your journey and background coming into PM&R. So as you know, it's notoriously, you know, a small field. Everyone kind of knows everyone. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what was your journey into discovering PM&R? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think um, it's it's really difficult to know how to how to get started with, with rehab if you don't have a foot in the door or somebody that you know personally who's been through it um, as a residency program or otherwise. So, you know, for me going into med school, I knew I was always interested in sports medicine and orthopedics. Um, but yeah, it was a little bit difficult to know exactly um, if that was the right fit for me. And I think during my rotations is really when um, that became obvious to me that a surgical specialty was aligned with my interests, but not my primary um, goal. For me, really, I, I enjoyed the time in the clinic with patients. Um, and I also really enjoyed fleshing out that differential diagnosis to understand, you know, what's the etiology of their pain or their musculoskeletal issue. Um, so for me, that was really more um, a driving factor into choosing sort of a non-operative specialty where I could um, still pursue my interest in sports medicine. Um, so PM&R was sort of a natural extension into that. Um, and then I was lucky enough as a fourth year to be able to do some rotations in PM&R. Um, I, did, I did two of them, and that was really helpful for sort of cementing um, PM&R as the ultimate path um, and really exploring, you know, the breadth of the specialty too, because at the end of the day, it's not just about sports medicine. It's about brain injury, neurorehabilitation, and all those wonderful things that this, um, this awesome specialty has to offer. Um, so doing a rotation was really key in appreciating all of that other um, aspects of, all those other aspects of physiatry, which are really, um, I think, crucial to the, pa the patient populations that we serve. Awesome, awesome answer. Um, you know, you really, sure. <laughs> you really, uh, you really talked about the breadth of the field. Um, and I, I think, so I, kind of a follow-up question with that. I think a lot of students do go into the way they discover physiatry. I can kind of speak personally from this is uh, an uh, initial interest of sports medicine, uh, orthopedics. So would you say when, in terms of deciding what field to go into, of course, you know, try out the fields themselves, but would you say just like being, knowing whether or not you're interested in surgery 
is an important aspect of, of making that decision. I mean, I think classically people always talk about, you know, uh, the main branch point in terms of decision-making for residency being, you know, do you want to do something surgical versus non-surgical? And I found that to be true in general. I think I, I really enjoyed the procedural aspect of surgery, but I didn't really, um, I didn't really um, feel as much like intrinsic gratification from just doing as much procedurally and then having less opportunity, I guess, for that longitudinal follow-up. So for me, that was definitely the first branch point in terms of, you know, finding the right specialty. Um, I will say too, you know, just because a lot of people are interested in sports medicine and think that that's a really awesome career path, which it is clearly, um, I'm very biased by the way, but um, yeah, appreciating, I think the breadth of, of physiatry is, is so important to figure out if it's the right fit, because at the end of the day, um, regardless of what you know, subspecialty you ultimately choose in physiatry or just going, going into general practice, you're going to encounter kind of the breadth of the field and you'll be serving patients who have a lot of neurologic diagnoses. So really being um, not only comfortable, but also just genuinely interested in that patient population, I think is really critical to succeed um, in PM and our residency. And, and, and I think is a helpful thing to contemplate for somebody who's considering PM and R's hey, I have an interest in sports and musculoskeletal medicine, but how do I feel not only about that piece, but how do I feel about the rest of the field? Because the rest of the field, even if you subspecialize, is going to stay with you for the, for the balance of your career. Awesome. Awesome answer. Um, all right. And I'm, I'm looking down. I want to make sure we, we capture all these points. Um, so I think you kind of talked about it, but was there any moment per se that you, you know, decided this is, you know, this is the field for me uh, during medical school. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's tough. Um, I can really appreciate it when, you know, people come to me and say, I have no idea how I'm going to choose and decide what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, because I was really sort of between a bunch of things up until the very last minute. Um, you know, I talked a little bit before about how, you know, I had an interest in, you know, orthopedics and, and sports medicine and how that led me to do a rotation in physiatry. But I guess the part that I didn't mention was as a medical student, I also fell in love with internal medicine because I really loved, you know, that the, the, the ability to really um, work on that differential diagnosis and really be able to, um, I think, you know, think critically about these complex patient presentations. Um, so for me, you know, I had to do a couple rotations in physiatry to make sure that I felt like I could have that part of, of my interest kind of fulfilled. And I think the tipping point, um, I guess, was, you know, this, when I was doing an inpatient rotation, actually, as a medical student at um, National Rehabilitation Hospital in, in DC. And, you know, I was on the brain injury service and we were really taking care of patients who I just, I felt as though they had, there was not a lot of other people who could appreciate the, the challenge of the experience that they were living. Um, and a lot of medical providers were coming to the table with sort of the viewpoint of, okay, this person has this problem list. They have hypertension, they have, you know, diabetes, they have all these things. Okay, let's prescribe medications to that endpoint. But at the end of the day, what struck me was that those patients, the only thing that they really cared about was how am I going to walk again? How am I going to get out of the hospital? And, and um, functionally, um, how am I going to go home and live, live a life that has some semblance of, of normalcy? So I love that I could use my, my, my medical brain and my differential diagnosis skills to try to help solve those functional 
um, issues that really matter to patients. Not to say that hypertension and diabetes aren't critically important to you know, success in that space as well, um, but I think that there was a lot of other people who were doing a super great job of managing those issues. And for me to be able to use you know, that skill set and apply it to something that the patients really care about, you know, how can I walk again? How can I speak again? How can I, you know, accomplish these daily tasks? Um, I was felt more rewarding in a way. Um, and I just felt like there was, there's less people who were, who were willing and able to do that. So I think that was sort of the decision-making point for me. That makes a lot of sense. So would you say that like your interest in internal medicine and, and making those differentials has that in your experience so far, has that interest sort of been satisfied with, with physiatry? Would you say that's pr pretty important in the field? I think traditionally, you know, people don't necessarily think of it that way. Um, you know, people think about people or patients coming to rehabilitation and okay, they already have the diagnosis. So what are you actually diagnosing? And, you know, there's a lot of that sort of mindset, I think that I've experienced. Um, but for me, it's it sort of goes back to what I was just explaining, you know, if once you get out of the mindset of I'm an internal medicine or family medicine doctor whose job it is to diagnose these medical common medical problems, and then you put your brain on and say, how do I solve this really like multi-system complex functional deficit that's preventing this person from going home? Um, I feel like you can tap into those skills in, in a very rewarding way. And then in the world of sports medicine, I think it's it's much easier to understand um, the relationship between like traditional medicine and, you know, Kind of our, our our workflow. Obviously, people are coming into to to our sports medicine MSK clinics with, you know, a new presentation of something, and then you're doing your traditional kind of workup and and physical exam and imaging and all that stuff, sort of in a more um, traditional sense. Um, so there's definitely a way to kind of get that differential diagnosis fix and and really to be able to use that part of your brain if that's something that you're interested in. Awesome. Yeah, I love that mindset. I mean. Like you said, it, you can really take all of your interests, but hone them all in on one thing. It's improving functionality of the patient and and sort of using all of your medical education, everything just to hone in on that goal. So awesome. Um, all right. Before we delve into specific interests, um, what, what kind of, broadly speaking, what are some interests you've developed in the field so far? Of course, sports medicine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've always obviously been interested in sports medicine. I think for me, um, you know, sports medicine is a relative term. I, I really, um, growing up kind of as an athlete and competing in alpine skating at a high level, I was definitely appreciative of the, the journey that, you know, athletes have to undergo to be able to be successful. So that was definitely a motivation. Um, but I think since being a resident and I think appreciating that there are other people that we need to serve, not just athletes, you know, just your everyday person who's coming in with back pain or knee pain or musculoskeletal pain, um, you know, spending more time with, with your more general MSK population, I think has sort of influenced what I do see as my ultimate career. You know, I'd like to be able to um, not just optimize the performance of high level athletes, but also to help, you know, your, your regular guy who's just trying to stay active and stay participatory in whether it's their you know goals to go to the gym or if they're just trying to run a half marathon or whatever it is making sure that those people as well get the highest quality care and access to um you know musculoskeletal treatments that can keep them 
ultimately healthy and at their you know ideal BMI and participating in sports, which is going to have all sorts of other health benefits, um, not just the physical ones that I've alluded to, but also the mental health benefits of being able to participate. So for me, it's not just about you know that athlete, but it's also about everybody else who's trying to be athletic and, and mm-hmm. continue on a journey of, of basically being healthy. And I think that's something that we really need to continue to, to develop and foster because it's um, it's one of the only ways that we know in medicine today to keep people out of the hospital is to optimize, you know, their physical health through exercise. So whatever we can do to, to get people exercising, I think is a really worthwhile endeavor. Awesome. And I think this is a great, uh, sort of segue into lifestyle medicine, which from what I understand is very much, uh, preventive, right. Preventing people from developing these things in the first place. So can you kind of give us an introduction? A lot of people don't know what lifestyle medicine is. Uh, into, so can you sort of give us a general introduction into uh, lifestyle medicine? Yeah, absolutely. So lifestyle medicine, generally speaking, is um, it's kind of a medical approach that tries to use, you know, evidence-based, both behavioral and, you know, traditional medical um, teachings to really optimize um, the health of people who have chronic diseases. Um, so lifestyle medicine um, has been around for a long time. I think it's getting a little bit more attention lately, especially in the community of PMNR, you know, where we have a lot of people coming in with a variety of issues, you know, to our musculoskeletal clinics or otherwise. And a lot of those issues um, are very deeply interrelated with, um, for instance, you know, their chronic lifestyle associated illnesses. So if I can give you an example, like a chronic lifestyle associated illness would potentially be, um, you know, smoking or obesity or all these things that, you know, unfortunately are super prevalent in our society and are intrinsically linked with all of your other medical, you know, conditions that you might have. It's really difficult, for example, in, you know, the work that I, that I see on the day-to-day basis to isolate somebody's chronic back pain from their smoking history and from their, you know, potentially challenges that they've had, you know, maintaining, um, you know, the, the, the ideal BMI. So, you know, if we can take a lens whereby we're not just focusing on, you know, that isolated chief complaint of, Hey, this person has back pain, but you can look at it kind of more broadly and say, what are the, what are the things that are contributing to this person having back pain? You know, is it medical illnesses that I've mentioned underlying this, like, obesity, smoking, hypertension, how is, how is that, you know, playing in? And what about psychologically, how is this person doing? Do they have a good support system? Do they feel as though, um, you know, their pain is associated say with depression or things like that. And, and I think the role of of a physician who has a lifestyle medicine inclination is to address all of those pillars, not just the chief complaint, if that makes sense. That does make a lot of sense. Um, which I think is a, would you agree? It's, it's a pretty good fit for, for uh, physiatrists. Yeah, certainly. I think um, it, it makes a lot of sense to, to, I think, have PM&R sort of at the forefront of this. And, um, you know, some of my mentors here at WashU have really pioneered the role of physiatry in lifestyle medicine. So that would be Dr. Heidi Prather, who now um, has left WashU and is working with um, the group over at HSS. You know, Dr. Hunt, who's here at WashU, and Dr. Cheng, um, you know, that group here, you know, amongst others that of course I, you know, it's a long list of people who develop, who deserve all the credit for sure. But I would say that group has really done an exceptional job in trying to 
show through the medical literature that there is a role for lifestyle-based interventions, specifically in the outpatient musculoskeletal world. Um, we have data that supports its use in other spheres. So for instance, in patients with metabolic disorders, so diabetes and hypertension, addressing the whole patient with a lifestyle approach has been shown to really optimize their outcomes in terms of their you know, objective disease um, status. Um, but it's the same thing that we're seeing here with our patients with musculoskeletal disorders too, is that if you address all of those other factors, people on average tend to do much better and they tend to get back to being more functional um, and able to, again, participate in the activities that are important to them, whether that's sports or otherwise. Um, so definitely big, big kudos to those, um, you know, big, you know, pioneers in our field who are really cementing, I think, the role of, of physiatry in lifestyle medicine. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I have seen in, in the med Twitter world, uh, sort of a lot more circulating articles of, about lifestyle medicine, um, which is great to see. Um, one more question. So sort of practically speaking, especially for residents who may be interested in lifestyle med uh, medicine, how do you go about, do you, do you need a fellowship or specific training um, to get into it? That's a really great question. So, you know, I think there's um, this, this is a question I think that's it, sort of evolving and the answer to this question is sort of evolving. So I would, if anybody's interested in lifestyle medicine, we firstly recommend that they check out the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, which has um, a lot of educational pathways that can help people become certified in lifestyle medicine. Um, pretty much anybody can become certified in lifestyle medicine, um, regardless of the residency is my understanding. Um, but there is a pretty intensive course that you do have to go through that does have a pretty strong medical bent to it, as you would imagine, seeing as we're addressing um, lifestyle associated medical illnesses, um, certainly there's gonna be a lot of um, internal medicine and family medicine sort of bent to it. Um, but um, my understanding is by doing that course, um, you also are gonna be very well equipped um, to manage and counsel patients on some of these issues that we maybe less commonly deal with um, as, as, a, as a main thing in PMNR. Um, so that's definitely a good place to start. And probably in the future, I would imagine that, you know, there, there will be some residency programs who might integrate some of this lifestyle medicine, um, I guess, coursework into their direct curriculum. But I, I'm not sure that we're quite there yet in PMNR, but certainly that's an aspiration I think some people have for the future. Awesome. Great to know. Um, all right. So sort of transitioning into um, pain medicine, which is uh, another one of your interests. Um, and this is sort of something near and dear to me. I have, you know, uh, people close to me who suffer from chronic pain. So I'm interested, you know, what sort of caught your interest uh, in pain medicine specifically? Yeah, so I think um, pain medicine and musculoskeletal medicine to me are, you know, along the same spectrum of disease, right? You know, if you think about sports medicine, you know, you're treating acute musculoskeletal issues all the way to people with chronic pain. They have, you know, chronic musculoskeletal or, you know, dysfunction that now has become maybe more, more centralized. So I think it exists on a continuum where we see these, these types of pathologies. So it's really difficult, you know, for me to isolate, well, okay, you want to just practice sports medicine or, hey, you just want to practice pain medicine. I think it's really, um, that line is very much, um, very fluid, right? So ultimately, I think being able to leverage the skills of somebody who's very comfortable in the pain medicine space in the sports medicine space and vice versa, I think is only gonna be 
um, a helpful thing for, for people who are interested in kind of that sphere of, of physiatry. So just to preface that um, answer. But yeah, I think, you know, I definitely got interested in pain just again by virtue of seeing um, a lot of patients in clinic who again have these kind of overlapping pathologies, maybe you know, their pain started in the context of some sort of sports injury or musculoskeletal injury that at one point was acute, but now because of some of these other factors, you know, potentially lifestyle related or otherwise, now they're left with more of a chronic issue that's more difficult to manage and um, is starting to infringe, for instance, on, you know, their day-to-day -day function and maybe even their psychological health. So being able to, I think, think about again, coming back to lifestyle medicine, kind of the whole person and addressing um, everything kind of more holistically, I think is really, really helpful in both um, sort of that more sports medicine and pain medicine space. Um, and as a resident, I've you know, been fortunate enough to work with quite a few pain researchers here at WashU, um, Dr. Heratunian being one of them. And um, it's, it's really exciting to see you know, all the advances in terms of um, clinical research and translational research that's been done in the pain space. And my hope is that as PM&R people, we can also leverage you know, that research that's mainly in the anesthesia pain literature and apply it as well to some of our patients who we see in the sports and musculoskeletal world and really um, try to bridge that gap. Awesome. Um, is there any, anything exciting in that atmosphere in the literature that you see, you know, coming up in the near future? Oh my gosh, there's so much. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it just, it really depends on what your interest is. I mean, certainly one area that I think that's, that's captivating a lot of people right now is the utility of, of biologics um, and applying that for people who have, again, more maybe acute musculoskeletal or, you know, tendinous or joint pathology. Um, but I think, um, Another, another really exciting place in the future is going to be, you know, what we, what can we do from a neuromodulation standpoint to really, you know, optimize um, these people who have more chronic dysfunction, who have then failed, you know, things like regenerative medicine and who are still hesitant or perhaps not surgical candidates and would not be eligible for like a joint replacement surgery or a spinal fusion. Um, so I think, you know, the neuromodulation space, the orthobiologic space is something that is evolving on the day-to-day -day basis. So it's, it's can be challenging to keep up with, with the literature. So if that's, if that's an interest of, of anybody, I, I really recommend that they, um, that they, you know, pair themselves up with a really solid mentor who can help kind of them navigate, you know, the best places to look for the up-to-date literature in a specific area of interest, because like I said, it's, it's pretty dynamic and changing you know, on the day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, and you uh, you touched on biologics, and I feel like that's uh, funneled down to the med student level. I see so many of my farm professors are like, guys, you need to know these biologics. Like these are this is the future of medicine. <laughs> so uh, I'm glad you glad you touched on that. Um, awesome. So now transitioning into uh, your specialty, which by the way, congratulations on your recent match into into sports medicine. That's exciting. Um, so. I know you've touched on it here and there, um, but what kind of made you decide to pursue a fellowship uh, specifically in sports medicine? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a really great question. I think one that I've been asked a lot, how did I make the decision um, to, to do sports medicine? I think, you know, at the end of the day, it probably just boils down to my original interest um, in coming to PM&R and what we were talking about before with regards to you know, the, the satisfaction of, of really diagnosing something um, 
And, you know, a lot of my mentors here, I feel like are really expert diagnosticians in the, the MSK space and um, they leverage, you know, technologies like ultrasound at the bedside and electrodiagnostics to really hone in on as best as we can really hone in on the etiology of the, of the chief complaint. Um, so that was something that was really appealing to me. If I was going to do a fellowship, I knew that I wanted to come away with something more tangible. So to me, um, spending a little bit of extra time, you know, really learning, you know, the things that are kind of the extension of the physical exam, which is, you know, more on the ultrasound and electrodiagnostic stuff to really help cinch that diagnosis. That's, that's really where I wanted to invest my time. Um, you know, not ruling out doing any, a second fellowship in the future. You mean, you never know. Um, but certainly I think for me, you know, thinking about the way that I would like to ultimately treat my patients is to be able to be as precise as possible with the diagnostics that I'm doing to be able to really um, use that information to both empower the patients and also to inform our treatments. And it's not to say that pain physicians don't do that. There can be wonderful diagnosticians. I think I was just really impressed with, um, especially here at WashU, you know, the people that I work with and how um, incredible they are at really pinpointing down that diagnosis and that, you know, you often, as I'm sure you've seen yourself, are motivated by um, and influenced in your in your tra trajectory, your personal trajectory by the people who surround you. So I think it ultimately just boiled down to that too. Absolutely. So there's a there's a strong interest in in St. Louis in in sports medicine. <laughs> good, good, for, good for everyone to know. Um, and and you sort of you talked about the importance of diagnostics and ultrasound. This is kind of a personal question, but I know that many uh, students also have this question because I see it circulating around all the time. Is um, getting kind of that early exposure to knowledge in ultrasound, would you say in your experience um, that residency is enough or is there any way you would recommend people to get an early start? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think regardless of, for, like firstly, you know, regardless of, of your interest in PM&R, whether it's neuro rehab, whether it's um, pain, whether it's sports medicine, whether it's PEDS, you know, ultrasound is going to be a technology that's going to be around to stay. I think that's pretty, pretty clear at this point, you know, even going back like five, 10 years ago, you know, some of my mentors were, you know, oh, well, this is a new, new technology, but let's see how long it actually is going to be around. And, and maybe just like a lot of other things it will come in and out of favor. And, and, and maybe, you know, it's not really useful to invest a lot of time. I mean, I think by now we know that ultrasound is, is sticking around. So it's definitely worthwhile getting, you know, familiarized with it. And I would say residency is a great time to do that. Um, the, the thing that's sort of underlies the use of ultrasound, which is something that we kind of get hammered in, in our brains a lot is, is your knowledge of anatomy. So mm -hmm. as a student and honestly, as a resident too, probably the best investment of, of anybody's time is to really make sure that you become that expert at musculoskeletal anatomy. So everything from, you know, your peripheral nerves all the way down to, you know, the innervations of like all of the skeletal muscles, basically, um, and trying to develop in your mind a 3D model of what like an arm looks like versus what a leg looks like. Um, because once you have that model in your brain, and once you've practiced it enough that it's there to stay and it becomes fluent, then doing something like applying, you know, new technology like ultrasound to look at that, it's going to make it so much easier. It's much more difficult to do the opposite and say, come to residency and having forgotten all of your anatomy, like, you know, maybe myself and some other people that I know, and then you have to, you have to rebuild that anatomy knowledge really before that ultrasound 
becomes useful to you um, because otherwise you're just looking at this more convoluted version of something that you can't remember, right? So making sure that you, you come to the slate whenever it is that you're gonna be really picking up that ultrasound curriculum for the first time and knowing that anatomy is gonna set you leagues ahead you know, from your colleagues. And I know it sounds basic and kind of annoying, but it's, it's the truth. Um, it's something that I think we, um, we, we can't practice enough. So there's definitely courses that you can take um, in you know, APMNR and AP. They all, always are doing um, educational modules on the use of ultrasound. Um, and there's always courses that you can, you can go to, especially at those conferences and practice scanning. I think those are great ideas just to get you know, familiarized with it. But in terms of like you know, a true investment of your time, I would just spend that time becoming an anatomy expert. Awesome answer. Yeah, I think I think that just absolutely makes a lot of sense, uh, which might be a nightmare to a lot of medical students. I feel like anatomy is a split topic. Some people hate it. Some people love it. Uh, also a good time to plug in our mid-year meeting. Uh, we are having actually an, an ultrasound course uh, at our mid-year meeting. So I, I think, like you said, it's definitely becoming very uh, important. Um, so another question. Yeah. I'll tell you, like I'm sitting here at this desk having having a meeting with you and, and directly beside my my computer today is actually this beautiful picture of the brachial plexus with all the perforations. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys, it doesn't go away. <laughs> it doesn't go. I feel like I I always think I have it down. Well, not all of it, but some of it down and then I just forget it and you, you just have to keep coming back to it over and over again. So it's good to know, even at your level, you still have to keep coming back to it. Awesome. Um, okay, and then, so sort of gearing off of that, what are your sort of future plans and endeavors in the field of, of sports medicine? What do you see yourself um, doing, whether that be private practice, working with a team, that kind of thing? Yeah, gr great question. Um, you know, I think, um, as I was alluding to before, I, I certainly do have a lot of interests. So um, I think honing down on what that ultimate practice looks like is, is, is definitely still a work in progress. But yeah, I mean, ultimately, you know, I'd like to be able to see, you know, all comers with musculoskeletal slash pain um, pathologies, whether that's acute or chronic. So, um, you know, and, and also to be able to utilize, you know, technologies at a pretty high level. So ultrasound and EMG, if, if you know, there were to be the opportunity to do that, I would love to. Um, be in a practice where I could do both of those things. Um, and just acknowledging as well, you know, sort of the prevalence of back pain in our population and kind of the expertise that physiatry trained people have in, in managing those patients. You know, I'm, I'm definitely very interested in, in including, you know, spine patients into, into my, my, my future practice and also using fluoro um, to help address, you know, appropriately those, those patients who do have back pain and, and who need some sort of other intervention to help um, bridge them, I guess, to physical therapy and other things like that. So I'd like to be able to utilize all of those tools. And I know that that's, um, for some people, it's, it's less appealing to be able to do, to use multiple modalities. They would rather just focus in on one thing. Um, but I think that, again, is a great question to ask yourself during um, your training, whether it's medical student level or residency is, you know, what do you like to do in one given week? Do you like to just do the same thing over and over again? Or do you need to have a little bit of variety in order to really keep yourself um, mentally engaged? For some people, they just want to focus in and be super, super expertise level 
um, at, at some at something, but but for me, I recognize that I, I need a little bit more diversity um, in order to to be able to stay at my game, even if that you know means that I'm probably not going to be the person who's doing the highest level, fanciest, cutting edge intervention. I would rather have a little bit more um, variety in, in my week schedule. So that I think is something that they don't really tell you about much in med school. Is just really pay attention to, you know, what it is that you like uh, in your if you're thinking outpatient versus inpatient. Um, and then if you're thinking outpatient, you know, how many things do you want to do in a given week? What does that week look like? You know, start building like a pros and cons list in your mind or even write it down on a piece of paper. Um, because we spend so much time focusing on learning medicine that we don't spend enough time, I think, thinking about what it is that we actually like versus dislike in any given day. So starting to make that list early, I think is, is only going to be a benefit to people. Um, I don't know that I answered uh, your question. No, it, it does. And uh, that's a great point. Um, I think, and I think that's what makes, at least so far, what I've seen in the field of physiatry, that's what makes it so great. There's so much breadth, like diversity in the field of, of what uh, your practice as, a, as an attending can look like, um, which is appealing to a lot of people. Um, sort of following up with that, you, you kind of mentioned um, interventional um, practice. So sort of to, to follow up with that, uh, I know a lot of people have questions regarding, do you need, how do you go about learning procedures? Do you need specific training? Can that be in any fellowship? Uh, can you sort of touch on that? Yeah, of course. I think this is really confusing. I think this is confusing for residents who are trying to apply for fellowship. Um, so I can only imagine, like when I was a med student, it was, I kind of started to develop an appreciation for this, but it's this space and an understanding like what you need in order to do what thing is also constantly evolving. So whatever I say to you today, just make sure that when it comes time to you applying and really looking into it, that you, you, you do fact check it with, you know, the, the, the latest up-to-date information. So, you know, kind of as it stands now, if you are interested in doing, you know, an interventional practice, um, there's a lot of different ways of getting there. Um, and interventional, I don't want to just be talking here about sports medicine. I think it's, again, important to realize that you can be an interventionalist and do pediatrics or do neurorehab um, and really manage things like spasticity at a high level, using like phenol, using um, botulinum toxin, um, doing that with ultrasound guidance. Um, yeah, you, you can really do a lot interventionally with PMNR outside of just the world of sports medicine, sports and spine and pain. So that's something I also have to say I didn't really appreciate. I thought when coming into this, okay, if you want to do procedures, it's probably going to be on the MSK pain side of the spectrum rather than it being on the neurorehab side of things. But that's totally untrue. You can be very, very interventional um, on, on that that side of the, of the physiatry field as well. So, so keep that in mind. Um, I think for, for doing, you know, the highest level spine interventions, which in my mind um, includes, you know, injections in the cervical spine um, and also contemplating doing things like, um, you know, radiofrequency neurotomy and also thinking about more high level neuromodulation. So inserting spinal cord stimulators, um, peripheral nerve stimulators, things like that. Um, typically, the trend is that for you to be credentialed in as many places as possible, that it's probably safe to do an accredited fellowship in pain medicine. Um, if your aspirations are to do EMG, ultrasound-guided procedures, and um, just bread and butter spine injections, 
Um, by that, I mean lumbar spine, like epidurals, you know, even some radiofrequency neurotomy stuff, but mostly it's focused on the L spine as opposed to the C spine um, and not really thinking about doing those procedures that would take you to the OR. Um, as of now, you can really kind of accomplish that um, through a sports medicine fellowship versus a sports and spine fellowship. The, the challenge is that every single fellowship is a little bit different in what they offer. Um, but I think, so you have to sort of do your research, which is kind of frustrating um, because it's not like residency where you're coming into it and you know, everybody's going to have a different flavor, but ultimately, you know, it's the training is pretty much going to be checking all the same boxes. There's definitely a lot of differences in any given sports medicine fellowship, any given sports and spine. Um, but I would say for pain, what is generally true is, you know, they kind of own the world of spinal cord stimulators and neuromodulation and things like that. So if that's of high importance to you, that's probably, you know, where you should end up, you know, in terms of doing a fellowship versus not, I will say there's a lot of people who just go into doing interventional practices right out of residency. And um, that's definitely something to keep in mind. Um, fellowship is not something that you should assume that you have to do in order to be able to have like a very fulfilling practice. Um, the challenges is, I think, in general, the trend, if you want us to say, for instance, in the academic setting, or if you wanted to work in a really competitive market, having a fellowship um, under your belt, especially an accredited fellowship in some circumstances, can certainly open the door and make it easier for you to be credentialed. But it is not an absolute necessity in this day and age for you to have a fellowship to be able to do most of those things with the exception of, you know, the stims and those things um, those on the higher level end of, of the procedural spectrum. And I think that's, you know, very true for, for neuro rehab as well. You know, you can go right out into practice and do spasticity management, but if you wanted to work in academics and really become the person who is doing spasticity in this big university setting for peds or whatever, then it probably is going to be easier for you to achieve that if you do do like an ACGME accredited pediatric rehab fellowship. Um, if that makes sense. So it's it's definitely evolving. I would say the best thing to do is to pair yourself up with a mentor who's sort of contemplated and who's advised people who are applying to those that range of subspecialty areas to really get a sense as to what, what is necessary for you to achieve you know, the outcome that you're looking for in terms of career trajectory. I, you hit so many points there uh, that are so important I feel like, and obviously confused me. I mean, I'm just a medical student, but I'm sure they confuse even, even residents uh, uh, as well. But I, I had no idea either that, uh, that you could do all these interventional things in pretty much any fellowship or any field of, of physiatry per se, subspecialty. Um, so that's kind of new to me. So that's, that's, that's very cool. Um, so as we kind of begin to wrap up here, we're gonna transition into more general physiatry questions. Um, so these are just kind of more fun questions. So what are some of your favorite moments as a, as a PM&R resident? Yeah, I mean, there's so many. I, when, when, yeah, I, I, it's hard to pick just one, uh, yeah. but certainly I would say, you know, the sense of community that we have here is awesome. And I've, I really just loved, you know, even between like the patient care situations, which are usually very rewarding and, and wonderful in and of themselves, but just being able to spend time with, with my, my co-residents, whether that's in the workroom, um, you know, writing notes or, you know, just outside of work going on a hike. It's, it's really nice to have a group of people that you're kind of going that experience through that experience of residency with. So um, definitely 
you know, and applying, you know, try to find a place that finds that, that hits that like culture and sort of sense of community um, as well, because you're going to be spending a lot of time with those people. And it definitely can be very, very rewarding um, and wonderful too, outside of the clinical care stuff. Awesome. Um, so along your journey so far, have, have there been any moments, any, anything that's caught you by surprise about the field that you feel like you hadn't known about before? I think we touched on it briefly before, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, so many things. I think PM&R is just, it's so complex and it's such a broad, like a broad field, I should say. Um, it's really difficult to capture all of that without really having, at least I felt this way, at least having done the, the job of being a resident. Um, so I would say, you know, as a med student, what was what was really helpful for me, at least started to get me there, was doing a rotation in place where I could do a week of brain injury, a week of spinal cord injury, a week of MSK, you know, just trying to get a sense of that breadth because our field is really unique um, in, in how many things it has to offer. Um, one of my favorite kind of quotes, I guess, and I, I just heard it kind of in the ether over the last couple of years, so I can't attribute it to any one person, but I remember very distinctly somebody saying, um, physiatry is um, the generalist specialty so you're the ultimate um, specialist generalist if you're a true physiatrist because you can see anything with, you know, medical deconditioning, neurological deconditioning, or you know, neuromusculoskeletal, musculoskeletal pain. Like those are in and of themselves hugely complicated and in and in pediatrics, right? Um, challenging topics. So it's it's what's incredible about PM&R and what's continued to surprise me is is how true it is that you really are expected to know um, a fair amount about a whole lot of stuff. Um, and that in of itself is, is really empowering too. And I think I would, I would say to anybody who's interested in PM&R, really keep that in mind because I think the trend of medicine in, in general is that people are trying to become more and more so specialized into that one thing. And that's, that's wonderful. And I can appreciate why that's becoming the case. But if you're somebody who likes to be, to have their, their, Pot, their hands in multiple different pots or who likes to think more broadly about things, um, which I think is a quality that a lot of people tend to have if they go into say family medicine or internal medicine, PM&R can be great because um, in general PM&R can be great because you can see so much different stuff um, and you can serve such a wide patient population. Um, I think that's, that's really cool. And it has continued to surprise me how much that's been true. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I think I think I didn't, I didn't even realize it. I think some of this is new to me as well. I sort of had this impression that PMR was very just MSK neuro, uh, which are two of my favorite things. So I thought it, <laughs> so it kind of makes sense. But the more I listen to you and other physicians speak about it, uh, the more I realize that you do have to have a very uh, good knowledge of, of everything. Um, so that's a, that's a great point. Um, let's see. Uh, so this is, I guess, this is sort of a, a chance for you to plug your residency program, but uh, what's kind of the, the rundown of the residency program in St. Louis, you know, sort of PGY2 to, to PGY4? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many programs out there, and I think the good news is that wherever you, know, you end up for residency, it's all accredited by the ACGME, which means that like ultimately, if you match, you know, you're going to be okay, you're going to get the training that you need to be successful. So um, I think our program um, has a lot of things that are pretty unique about them, um, especially in terms of our schedule. So we um, definitely have in terms of 
PGY1, you know, half half categorical, half advanced positions. So there's some people who will come here for a PGY1 year and we have a great um, PGY1 year here, um, but then we also do encourage people to um, explore and go out and do a PGY1 year. If it's surgical or otherwise, that might be, again, directly in line with the things that they wanna learn. So we're not um, forcing anybody to stay here for, for their intern year. Um, in terms of you know your actual PMNR training, the PGY2 to PGY4, um, in general, people have to do 12 months of inpatient rotations, which is I think policy that is per the ACGME. Um, what I think we do really well is as the PGY2 here, you're not entirely gonna be just in the inpatient rehab hospital. You will be spending quite a bit of time there, but you'll also have the opportunity early to get exposure to, again, the breadth of physiatry. So you'll be able to do electives as a PGY2 and MSK, pain, PEDS, um, neuromuscular medicine, all of these things, because Again, our, our field is so broad and so complex that I think the philosophy of our, our program director is really to make sure that our, the trainees here get exposed to that um, as early as possible so that they can start to make decisions in terms of you know, what it is that they like and that they don't like. And for a PGY2, you know, that's looking at, do I like inpatient? Do I like outpatient? Um, do I like clinic? Do I not like clinic? You know, what kind of clinic do I like? So being able to have the opportunity to ask yourself those questions early, I think is really beneficial, not only for plotting potentially future fellowship, but also for plotting what it is that you want your actual life to look like. Because again, we're not planning to be residents forever. This is just a stepping stone to that ultimate job. So I think we do a great job of positioning people early to help them understand PMNR and, and start to make decisions about their lives. I would say the other thing we do have, um, a pretty supportive community here. I think if, if people are interested in doing research or people are interested in um, kind of having all the resources of an academic center, WashU is a great place for that because there's somebody who is at the top of their field literally doing research in pretty much every anything imaginable here. So as a trainee, even if it's not directly physiatry adjacent, you know, you can approach any PI or any attending across the university system and be like, hey, I saw that your research on the website looks really interesting. Can we talk? I'm, I might be, you know, I'm looking for a project. Um, and I found that the community here is really exceptional in accommodating people. And I think that's a huge, huge strength um, because you need to be in order to be able to, again, meet your career objectives or even start to develop like what those are, like having opportunities like that um, is really critical. And that's something, again, that goes outside of that, you know, ACGME mandated um, specific rehab curriculum. Like those are those intangible other things that you probably don't know about unless you ask. Um, and then the other last thing I'd say that I think is a big strong suit here is um, I think early access to just exceptional mentorship. Um, which as, as you know, as, as a student having gone through, you know, all of, all of your training so far, having people that you can rely on who can give you, um, you know, the, their perspective on the world and also help you understand what it is that um, you need to become successful and also help you explore informally what your options are in terms of career stuff is, is invaluable really. Um, and I didn't necessarily appreciate that about WashU coming in because I, I didn't know to really ask that question about mentorship, but um, I think mentorship in general has gotten a lot of attention re recently through social media, but I would encourage applicants to ask a lot about like, what does that structure look like? Who is out there to give me advice? Um, and I think WashU has a lot of really great people to, to give you advice and to, to position you for you know, developing your future career. That's awesome. And I think you know, you're really touching on mentorship. 
um, which is which is key, I feel like. Um, and sort of seg perfect segue into our next question, which is sort of because PM&R is sort of a small field and it can be difficult to gain exposure as a medical student, especially now with COVID or within the last two years, really, with COVID, I feel like students are struggling. Even if they have that interest, they just struggle to get any actual exposure. So what advice, um, you know, of course, there's, there's mentoring, like you said, what, what other advice would you give a student to, to really gain insight into the field? Yeah, it's such a challenging time. Um, you know, certainly it's it's more difficult, I think, than it's ever been in, in the sense that, you know, there's it's becoming really competitive and then seemingly there's also less access because of the pandemic. But I'm hopeful that that will change, um, you know, in the next coming years in terms of um, conferences and things like that becoming more available because of the you know pandemic, hopefully, hopefully winding down. Um, but if certainly you're looking for um, an elective exposure and you 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 know you say you can't get that elective because of covid or other restrictions great resources tend to be the professional societies like you know your professional society that you're involved with um, whether it's um, you know apmnr also or aap i think do a really great job of being all encompassing and, and really helping medical students as well not only understand what pmnr is but also there are programs available through AAP and APMNR where they set you up with, with a PMNR mentor um, who shares you know, some interests to you um, or not, just a person who can be a good sounding board, if anything, um, across you know, a, a variety of institutions in the country. So that to me is a really, really invaluable resource in this time when you may not have access to the traditional, um, traditional rotations, but I think that will change. Um, and then the other thing too is um, certainly social media has become a very interesting space. And I think physiatry, med ed, social media has really you know, picked up. And I think there is the opportunity there for people who are interested to um, you know, follow you know, some of the more um, active accounts. And I think it's not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination, but at least it's some window into the world of PM&R and like what people are like and what people are interested in and what they're posting about. Um, can also serve as a as a kind of a unique um, unique window in, into the world of, of physiatry. But yeah, and, and I would say a lot of people in that social media space are also pretty open to you know um, messages from students who are looking for mentorship or looking for connections too. Um, I, I know that I've reached out to people, um, you know, being a, a recent fellowship applicant, you know, to the same end, um, trying to look for advice and just general, um, yeah, just general information and use social media to to my advantage for that. I think you touched on uh, some really important things there. Um, and I, I wanna ask a couple, couple more questions. I don't wanna take up too much more of your time. Um, but from, from my, first of all, from my personal experience, I completely agree, especially in med Twitter in the physiatry world, everyone is so friendly. I was so surprised by how friendly everyone is. You just like, everyone's following each other, everyone's conversing. But I, I do have a question, as a student, it can be pretty overwhelming you know, you're, you're reading these things, you don't have a lot of knowledge, you don't have a lot to offer uh, the field per se yet. Um, so what is sort of your take on how a student can use social media to their advantage when it comes to matching and, and all of that? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one, Daniel. Honestly, I, I think this, um, you know, there's there's no clear playbook or rule book as to how to how, as to how to behave um, on social media and how to interact with others. I mean, 
you know, before we get into how to use it to your advantage, I think, you know, the ground rules are, are very, very clear. You know, anything that you write on there is going to be on there for posterity. And you want to make sure that your grandmother and your future children are all going to be, you know, very much willing to read that. And, and you know, 100 years from now or tomorrow. <laughs> so, um, you know, just obviously using the utmost decorum and professionalism, you know, goes a long way. Um, yeah, I think in terms of how much students can use it to their advantage, you know, it's it's tricky because you don't want to be overbearing on somebody and you don't want to reach out to them necessarily and, and put them out. But um, in general, it, it if it's somebody who's engaging a lot on social media and, and they, you know, you can always reach out to them with with a message and say, hey, I'm, I'm would you be open to talking? And certainly they can always ignore you or they can always say no. Um, and just I would say just not be not be presumptuous about it. And generally, people, I think, are going to be pretty welcoming. Um, that being said, it's by no means required to reach out to people on social media or to engage with programs on social media or to retreat, retreat programs on social media. Um, I think a lot of people feel pressure to engage with those leaders or engage with programs, especially now through these virtual application cycles. That's you know, not going to change or shouldn't definitely change the way that people see you. Um, it's really going to be your application and your interview that's going to matter in terms of your, you know, candidacy for a particular residency program. I would say to use it more as an information gathering tool more than anything else, um, rather than it, using it as a way to sort of, um, I guess, change, you know, or think about how it would change the perception of, of you versus the program, with the one caveat being that obviously if you're going to you're going to post anything it should remain as most professional as possible because if anything i don't think it's going to necessarily improve your ranking status or your ability to match successfully but if anything it could potentially detract from it if you were to post something that was you know conceived as being unprofessional but of course i think most people know that already yeah that makes a lot of sense um yeah thank you for that i think like you said social media is just becoming so prominent um and it's for a lot of students it's intimidating because they feel like they're, there's almost this pressure to you have to be on social media, you have to be on Twitter, or else you're like almost at a disadvantage compared to these other people who are interacting so much. And like, they're, I mean, you have residency directors retweeting their stuff, and they're like, oh, this is, you know, so uh, that's, that's good to know. Yeah, I think it's really complicated, right? I mean, like, what does that mean? A retweet? Is that an endorsement? You know, it's definitely a space that is is a little bit challenging to navigate. But, you know, there's a lot of residency programs that are not on social media. There's a lot of them who are not, don't have their program directors on social media, who are not actively engaging with candidates. Um, and, and I think that's fine. So I, I would just, I would treat it as, like I said, information gathering um, and potentially a way to reach out for more, you know, for, for mentorship and things like that, but not necessarily um, stress out about whether or not, um, or what the meaning is behind somebody you know, replying to you in like this very public space and retweeting you, I, I would not put any pressure on yourselves to, to feel like that's an important part of your application to, to PM&R. Um, and the one thing that I'll say to, to your point before is like, how do people, how do people get engaged now that things are more virtual? I would say the, the only other thing that I think I failed to mention is not only looking for mentorship through the professional societies, but if there's always, if there's an opportunity to get involved with like say a medical student council or a committee with one of those professional organizations, even if it's not AAP, AAPMNR or any of the like super big societies, even if it's just, you know, a society that's more near and dear to your heart or something that's more directly in line with your say future interests, say it's like a brain injury society or a neuro rehab society or a pediatric society, 
all of those things are going to not only help you network, but they're also going to expose you to people who could potentially serve as mentors. So that's, I think, also very powerful now that there may be less in, in-person interaction. Yeah, absolutely. Great point. Um, well, this has been an awesome conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot, uh, which is great. Um, now, you're a very resourceful person. You have a lot of insights. Um, is there anywhere where people can reach out to you? Yeah, so um, to our point on social media, I'd be obviously happy to uh, connect with anybody um, on that platform. Um, I'm, I'm on Twitter, um, kind of on a more professional, like uh, public uh, way. So certainly um, people are welcome to um, reach out to me there if they have any questions about our program, about fellowship, about physiatry match in general. I'm, I'm always happy to speak. And if I don't know the answer, I can hopefully connect you maybe with somebody who does. Um, but that being said, um, yeah, good luck to everybody out there applying. You know, you'll be fine. It's just, uh, I got to take things one day at a time. And, and um, you know, physiatry is really lucky to have people like you, like interested in our field, right? And, and, and you know, Daniel, you as well, thank you so much for putting this together and really spreading the word about, about PM&R and what you can do with the specialty, because I think um, that's really what's going to going to be the future here is, is making sure that we get people who are interested in it for the right reasons and who really gravitate with with the ethos of physiatry and and um so i'm just really excited to have been here today absolutely thank you so much um thank you everyone for tuning in on this episode of the aoc aoc pmnr podcast my name is daniel valdez i am a second year medical student um uh, thank you again dr fogarty for joining us in today's episode mm-hmm.